This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jen. Before we start the show, we want to take a moment and note that today's episode about the anniversary of the Robb Elementary School shooting in Texas may be difficult for some listeners. For our other conversations on gun violence in America, including how communities grapple with that violence, visit the18.org. Please take care of yourselves and thanks for listening. Today marks one year since the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, left 19 children and two teachers dead. Even though nearly 400 officers were at the scene that day, it took over an hour for police to reach the gunmen. They're shot at, they retreat, and they never go back in. They let children die in that classroom. And I can't even explain to you what they've taken from me. That's a clip from a new CNN special called Surviving Uvalde, Inside a School Shooting. Experts and officials say the response by authorities that day was a failure. And investigations into exactly what happened are ongoing, with families still searching for answers. This year so far, there have been 23 school shootings and at least 241 mass shootings in the U.S. What can we learn from the school shooting in Uvalde and the many that have come before and after? And how does an event like this affect survivors and the communities long term? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Joining us for the conversation is John Woodrow Cox, a staff writer at The Washington Post. He's also the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. John, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Uvalde, Texas, is Shimon Prokopes. He's a senior crime and justice correspondent at CNN. The CNN special, Surviving Uvalde, includes his extensive reporting. Shimon, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Now, in that introduction, Shimon, we heard briefly from a mother you spoke with recently. You've spent a lot of time with the families of Rob Elementary over the past year. And as I said, you're in Uvalde today. How are they dealing with this anniversary? Um, I would say that it's it's really hard for them. Um, in, in part, it's because there's just no closure uh, in terms of instead of focusing on remembering their dead kids and 
remembering them in a way that is you would expect a parent to remember them they don't really have time to do that because they're still fighting to try and figure out what exactly happened still fighting a system that at every turn has worked against them and it's really really hard uh, for them you know this is a community that isn't necessarily um, together there's a lot of division within this community and there's a lot of people who wish that you know sadly that people would move on from what happened here and so this is what the families here are up against when you say there are people who wish these families would move on in, in what way well their families are still demanding a lot of change from the police department to the school system here. You know, security, they still don't feel that security at the schools are adequate. They don't feel, uh, they feel that the police department is still not adequately trained. There are still officers on the police department who will, I'm told, will likely be fired at some point um, who were at the school on the day of the failed response. And many of those officers are still patrolling these streets and these community, uh, the community, the families really are not on the same page in terms of what should happen to these officers and what should happen to the school uh, and how the school system and the security needs to be improved. And they make a lot of noise. They're at city council hearings. They're at different events demanding change. And honestly, the way some of the people in this community have reacted to that is it's just, it's gross. And when the superintendent, uh, initial superintendent, ultimately retired after all of the controversy, um, you really saw that division in this community because so many of the people came out in support of the superintendent and they did not want to support the families. And they thought the families were demanding accountability in the wrong way and that it shouldn't have been directed at the superintendent. And so there's things like that because for this community, for the families, they do not want this community to, to forget what happened. But there are many of the people in this community who say that we need to move on, we need to go back to what Uvalde was. And that means for the media to leave, for the press not to be here, for us to stop talking about this. And the family members are saying, no way are we ever going to stop talking about this. John, you've actually also spent time in Uvalde. What was your experience of the community? Yeah, I mean, I think what Shimon just talked about was was very accurate. I mean, I've been writing about how kids are impacted by, you know, gun violence for more than six years now. I've studied every school shooting since Columbine. And, you know, this is one of one, <laughs> this shooting in Uvalde. And, and so is the reaction. Uh, there is almost always an instinct in the aftermath of these things uh, for people who are half step removed or a step removed to say, well, have you moved on? Are you moving on? Can we move on? Right. And I think some of that is the uh, sort of the fill in the blank strong, right. Is there's kind of a clock on people's willingness to let these victims and these families grieve, but I've never seen ever the level of animosity and disregard and disdain in many ways for a community of victims. I mean, we're one year out and already 
many months ago that change happened. I, I really, I couldn't believe it uh, when it was happening, and it's it's a sad thing to see. You know, y- you don't ever get over this. You know, certainly if you've lost your child or your sibling, but it goes beyond that. You have hundreds of children. That's really been much of the focus of my work is the, on the survivors of these things. The children are not physically harmed. You know, the, the girl I wrote about, Caitlin Gonzalez, I spent all summer with her. You know, she still visits the graves of her friends every week, every single week. She still goes to visit her friends at the cemetery. And, you know, the free therapy that she was provided in the aftermath of the shooting was 15 minutes every other week. So what her parents do now is they rent a car, they pay for gas, they drive her to San Antonio every single week. And they're, they're paying for that. They're paying for therapy from a private therapist. So, uh, you know, in many, many, many ways, we have failed as a society. (laughs) We have failed those families in the aftermath of the shooting. What I'm trying to understand is what is at the heart of that, what I hear you both describing as a disregard for the grief of these parents both the parents of of the children who were killed, the families of the teachers who were killed, but also the children who were traumatized or in some cases wounded. And and Shimon, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around that. You know, I will tell you, it's been one of the saddest parts, one of the saddest things in covering this story. Um, And I think they don't, the community here is not serving these victims. And this is something that the Department of Justice is looking at. I mean, they realize that the services that needed to be provided to this community were not there. These kids who survived, I've spent a lot of time with those kids, um, they are traumatized beyond belief. Many of them don't have the opportunity, the means, the ways to talk about what they experienced being trapped in a classroom with a gunman for over an hour, forcing themselves to play dead, putting blood on their bodies so that the shooter would think that they're dead. The way these 10-year-olds had to think uh, in those moments to survive, it's, it's just incredible. And they're not able to get the help that they need. Many of them don't want to don't go to school. And the parents here are sort of in a place where I think they don't know what to do. And so they're letting the kids stay home and they're not getting the education. And there's nothing here that's going to make it better right now. Um, I think this is a community that sort of has been, you know, they had a way of doing things. And we, the media, the, the public the, the public eye on this community of how they used to do things and how they would honestly just cover things up, perhaps. Um, they don't like it. The people who lead this community don't like the fact that we're still here, that we're still reporting on this. And they, I think, in many ways like to, you know, perhaps it's kind of like there's a sort of, there is some racism There is a class system here, you know, and their hope is to keep, I just think, keep people out of this community who are not part of this community. And so the more we focus on the wrong, 
uh, they don't like it. Uh, you know, I have found it very troubling in particular with the way the school district has behaved with these parents at the school board meetings, uh, throwing them out, banning them from meetings, cutting meetings short, uh, telling them you only have a few minutes to speak. In the very beginning, they were doing this to them. Uh, but the parents fought back and they kept fighting and they kept fighting and they started to see some change. And I think that has really upset some people here. Um, you know, you have a mayor who's been here a long time. The superintendent was uh, at the school for a long time. He kind of inherited the position. So things have been sort of disrupted here, and they don't like it. We're discussing the ongoing investigations and unresolved tensions in Uvalde one year after the school shooting at Robb Elementary. We'll get more into those investigations after the break. And in a moment, we hear from a survivor of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, about how these events affect students long term. We'll be back with more after this break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In a country that has experienced more mass shootings than days so far in 2023, it's a grim reality that shaped how many of you live. Let's get back to the conversation with these messages we got from some of you. I've quit a job that required me to go into high schools, and my 16-year-old daughter is afraid to go to movie theaters. On the 4th of July last year, I was not feeling proud to be an American and I decided not to attend our town's parade. Instead, my family and I spent the entire day locked in our house as police searched for an active shooter who ultimately killed seven people and wounded over 40 others at the parade that I chose not to attend. I personally know people who were murdered. I also know many who survived. The shooter and his siblings attended school with my children. My life has become a constant juggle of safety versus normality. I was in a public parking lot and I went to the wrong vehicle thinking it was mine and something that I think is maybe embarrassing. Um, I actually like almost ran from the car because it it just my knee jerk reaction for whatever reason yesterday was people die accidentally getting into the wrong car. So I wanted to share that experience, especially as um, a survivor from the Virginia Tech mass shooting. I've never had my alert go up as quickly as it did yesterday. And it's um is occurring to me how how much it, uh, guns are influencing our culture. Thanks for those messages. 
Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Sari Kaufman is a survivor of the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, in 2018. She's now a volunteer at Students Demand Action. They focus on preventing gun violence. She's also the founder and director of the My Vote Project. That's a youth-led organization that provides information on candidates. Sari, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is John Woodrow Cox, a staff writer at The Washington Post and author of Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, and Shimon Prokopes, a senior crime and justice correspondent at CNN. Osiri, anniversaries like these can bring up a lot of complicated feelings. As you see another community experience their first year since a mass shooting where children were involved, what sorts of things come up for you? Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking every time a shooting happens, and especially on the one-year mark of these shootings, because as a survivor of the shooting at my high school, I can understand the feelings and the emotions. And I think it emphasizes that when these shootings happen, they're not just a moment in time, but gun violence sticks with you, and you have to learn how to process it. But it is extremely difficult, especially as a young person, going through something like that. And I, I, I feel for the Robb Elementary School students and the Valde community because I know every time it's the one-year mark of Parkland, it's extremely difficult. The police response at Parkland was criticized. Two officers were fired for neglect of duty after an investigation, and the school resource officer on duty was charged with neglect. That trial is set for next week. What are you thinking about around these issues of police response when it comes to school shootings, Sari? Yeah, well, I think the what happened at my high school and Rob Elementary, you know, it's different on, on a lot of levels. But the underlying issue is that when we have police or good guys with a gun, they're not stopping these bad guys with a gun. And I think it really goes to the point that we need proactive measures and stop the violence before it can happen. And that's why gun violence prevention and gun safety laws are so important because we can't let it go to the place where a person is walking into a school with a gun and then we decide to act because in these situations you see that that's not a a, a smart choice. And I think that's why gun violence prevention and these gun safety laws are so important and why I've dedicated my life to gun violence prevention advocacy. Shimon, there are numerous ongoing investigations into what happened at Robb Elementary, including one by the Department of Justice. What's the status of those investigations? So the Department of Justice investigation, it's all civil, right? So it's it's a group of former police officers, current sheriffs and leading law enforcement officials from all across the country that have joined in and are doing this investigation. And it's extensive. Um, We thought we'd have something by now from them, but they were just here uh, about two weeks or so ago. Uh, One of the top officials from the Department of Justice, the number three person, Benita Gupta, who's kind of in charge of this investigation, she met with the families here. Uh, She told them that they need more time. It's complicated. There's a lot to go over. I've seen almost all of the material that the investigators here have gathered, and it's a lot. You're talking hundreds of hours of video and audio statements. So there's a lot for the investigators to go through. So you have the Department of Justice, which is going to look at the mistakes that were made and what better things can could be could have been done in terms of training, also social services. And then you have 
the Texas Rangers, which have conducted their investigation, they've told us that they're done. Uh, and now they're waiting for the district attorney to decide whether or not she's going to pursue charges. Um, and we don't know because she's kind of not, she doesn't talk about it. And the other thing is she's kind of an obstacle in all of this because she's the one that's preventing a lot of the information from coming out. Uh, she keeps telling us that she needs more time. She's not allowed the Department of Public Safety to release any of the body camera footage, anything, any of the material they've gathered because she said she needs it for her investigation. But, but we don't know where that investigation is going. But, but Shimon, you were able to get a hold of at least some of the body cam footage from that day. How? Because the families well, hadn't seen this footage. Correct. We, we have every body camera that was basically used on that day. Um, and some of it is just horrific video from inside the hallway and inside the classroom. We had some sources who came to us uh, probably in, in the weeks after we were here, um, after some of our reporting. And, you know, we were chasing people around, you know, all of the law enforcement officials. And during those times when we were chasing people around and confronting them and asking them questions because they were not providing any information, we were put in touch with some sources and the sources were willing to help us and essentially gave us a lot of the information and then we got more information from other folks. And that's how we started doing a lot of the reporting uh, and working with the families and trying to get them some answers and trying to allow them to view and see some of the material that we have because they need answers and they've not been able to get it from any of the officials. And so they've been turning to us to try and help them. Well, the Uvalde School Board fired Pete Arandondo, the school district police chief, in August of 2022. He's been criticized for poor decision-making the day of the shooting. But as we've said, there were multiple departments there that day, including state and federal police. What kind of accountability, if any, Shimon, have families in Uvalde seen so far? None, really. I mean, there hasn't been any. Outside of Pete Arredondo, who was forced uh, forced out, um, fired, um, the acting police chief on the day of the shooting was uh, a man by the name of Mariano Pargas. Um, he was a lieutenant, but he was the acting chief. So he was a leading law enforcement official on scene that day. He ultimately resigned. He was forced to resign after we did some reporting and we uncovered that he knew that there were kids inside the classroom and failed to take any action. Um, he was directly told by a dispatcher that who was on the phone with a girl, a little girl inside the classroom who called 911 to say that her friends were in there, that there were people hurt, that there were people still alive but in bad shape. Um, and yet he was found to do nothing. He, he simply turned around, walked away, and, and went to another area. And when we brought this story to the mayor, he was furious. The mayor ultimately forced his resignation and said, well, if you don't resign, we're going to fire you. And so the acting chief that day for the Valde Police Department wound up resigning. And that's really it. There's been no other accountability. I mean, there were a lot of leading top law enforcement officials from across Texas, really. I mean, there were so many different agencies here, um, and no one's been held accountable. The audio you're referring to of that 911 call between this 10-year-old girl um, in conversation with the operator, and she is so composed and 
explaining what's happening in the classroom, directing other children about what to do. And there's a point where she says, I know what to do because my daddy taught me. My daddy told me what to do. And Siri, that that moment really broke my heart because it said a lot about what we're preparing kids for in this country today. And And as a young person, how do you think being prepared for a mass shooting how it shaped your life. Yeah, I think it's so sad and it just shows the reality that we are the mass shooting generation and that we have all these young people growing up and looking for the exits at their schools, at movie theaters, at the malls, because we are all so on alert and afraid that these shootings can happen anytime. And it's not just an abstract fear, but because we see it in the news every single day and we see that more than 100 Americans are getting shot and killed every day, it's a reality. And it it's just so sad because I know as a young person who's been through a shooting, it changes your life and you're always constantly on alert and fearful that a gunman can walk in at any time. And, and that's just not how... We should live, and it has long-term consequences, um, you know, constant anxiety, constant fear. And it's, it's sad, especially when you see a 10-year-old going through that. We're talking about the long-term impact of school shootings with Siri Kaufman from Students Demand Action, John Wittrow-Cox with The Washington Post, and CNN's Shimon Prokopas. I'm Jen Moyt. You're listening to 1A. If memory serves me, the the young girl I was just referring to, her father was a veteran, so he was teaching her this from the perspective of someone who served in the military. I mean, John, beyond the experience of a school shooting, if you're in that situation, if you're a survivor, the the school shooting drills, um, the media stories that young people are encountering. What have you learned about how that's shaping this generation? Yeah, that that really speaks to the uh, broader consequence of living in a society that allows children to be routinely shot to death in their schools. You know, statistically, it is very, very unlikely that a child will ever go through a school shooting. Uh, But what's not unlikely is that they'll go through a lockdown, for example. So not a lockdown drill, but an actual lockdown. We looked at one school year pre-pandemic and found that somewhere between 4 and 8 million children went through a lockdown in that year. And most of those were caused by the threat of a shooting. So somebody posted online, I'm going to shoot up your school, or there was a shooting down the street. And we know that a meaningful number of children, when they're suddenly forced to hide in the corner uh, and turn the lights off and be quiet, we know that a meaningful number of them think for a moment at least that they're going to die in their schools that day. And we know that because they text their parents goodbye. They uh, send all sorts of messages out saying who they love. In one case, I talked to a boy who wrote a will saying who he wanted his toys to be given to. That is the uh, broad consequence of this, right? And it's, those kids are not living in some fantasy because they have seen children in Uvalde and Parkland and Sandy Hook who look just like them killed on days just like those days. So, you know, we, this idea that we limit 
the victims to the number who are killed, which is so often a habit of both the public and, and frankly, the media, right? When we have those headlines, they're reduced to the number of children and adults who were killed in these shootings. That doesn't begin to capture the number of people affected. I mean, that, that's really the reason we created a database of school shootings that goes back to Columbine. And the, the focus of that database is not just on the number of school shootings or the number of people killed. It's the number of children who are on campus when those uh, shootings occurred. And since Columbine, we know that uh, in the neighborhood of, uh, I'd have to check my database, but in the neighborhood of 350,000 kids now, that's where that number is, who were on a campus when a school shooting occurred. It's, it's an enormous number, and even that number really doesn't begin to capture the effects. We're talking about millions of children who are directly affected by this plague. Shimon, you spoke with families in Uvalde and also some of the kids who survived the Robb Elementary School shooting, and we hear from several of them in the CNN special about Uvalde. Do you ever think about your friends from, from class that day? Yes. What do you think about? Well, I think um, that I miss them. How about you, Jaden? I miss my friends. How do these kids talk about the way their lives have been affected, Shimon? It's tough. They, um, you know, so you hear there from A.J. Martinez, uh, he was shot in the leg. And then Jaden Canizales wasn't injured, um, but his scars and his pain are not visible. And Jaden is a kid who was really affected by the noise, the gunfire. And he now wears headphones. He, everywhere he goes, he likes to bring these big headphones because sounds scare him. And so he wears them and he puts on music or he'll put them on sometimes even if he doesn't hear anything coming from them. It uh, provides him a sense of security. And I think that's kind of how it is for a lot of these kids that survive. They're looking for some kind of security. They're afraid. They're afraid to go places. They're afraid to sleep. Um, Jaden, I met Jaden so in the beginning, but I worry about a kid like Jaden because I don't know that he's getting any better. And I, I, spending some time with him, I actually think it's maybe getting a little worse. I hate to say it, but it's because they're not getting the help that they need. And AJ is the same thing. AJ is disabled now, but they're both just struggling, really just struggling. Jamie from Maryland emails, I was a student at Virginia Tech in 2007 when the shooting there happened. I would have been in class in the next building except my teacher canceled class. I suffer from PTSD because of that experience. Now I'm the mother of two beautiful children. As a mother, the fear and anxiety I experience every day is far greater than what I dealt with prior to becoming a mom. We must do better for our children. This can't go on. We'll be back with more in a moment. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. 
He tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to the conversation. Sari, what kind of support did you have after surviving the shooting at at your high school in Parkland? What was made available to you? Yeah, well, we had therapists and counselors and we had dogs and different animals that were therapy animals come to our school. But similar to what happened at Rob Elementary School, I think it wasn't enough. There's still students five years later struggling And now a lot of us are in college and figuring out, you know, how do you find the right resources as a college student? And I uh, am away from my community. And and how do I grapple with going through the shooting and then going to a new community where people might not understand the trauma and the grief I have? Uh, So it's definitely been difficult. And there needs to be a lot more focus, similar to what John said, on how we can help these students grieve and process the trauma after the shooting, uh, because there's just not enough resources when these shootings happen. And, you know, the media will move on, but the gun violence sticks with us and the trauma sticks with us. Um, and I think that needs to be a a deeper conversation, especially on the national level of how we can support gun violence survivors. We got this email from Aaron who says, I'm a mental health therapist certified in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. It is shocking that a child was granted 15 minutes of therapy every two weeks in a pitifully inadequate attempt to help her. I am proud of her parents for realizing this and making sure she attends therapy. John, in your reporting and research, what have you learned about the support that's necessary for kids who go through such a traumatic experience? You know, the most important thing is long-term commitments. Uh, You know, there is a sense that if a child is okay in the immediate aftermath, that they're going to be okay forever. And that is not how trauma works. Trauma is incredibly complicated. I've seen cases where it doesn't emerge for decades. I mean, I've I've been in touch for a long time with a survivor of the uh, Columbine shooting. And I was texting with her on the day of Uvalde, and she couldn't read the headlines. She was a mess because of that shooting. And, you know, what we, what we see at the school district level is there's typically a lot of free therapy that shows up in the immediate aftermath because there's all this attention. There's lots of money raised. There's therapists who come in from out of town. And sometimes kids make connections with those therapists, but then the therapists leave three or six months later, and the kids are really without any support. You know, the way I view it is if we're going to live in a society where we accept this as uh, a a thing that will always happen, which, you know, probably for the remainder of our lifetime, school shootings will will likely not end, then we have an obligation to support these kids in the long term. And the way to do that is to give them long-term, consistent help to therapists who have 
expertise in trauma. Because, you know, not all therapists are the same. I've seen, you know, a little girl I wrote about in South Carolina uh, who went through a school shooting there that no one remembers. She went through a dozen different therapists before she finally found one who had the right expertise for what she's dealing with. So just the idea of, oh, we're going we're gonna to show up with therapy dogs and therapists for three or six months, and that's it. It is simply not enough. Because some kids, the worst of their trauma won't even emerge in that period. It'll take six months or a year or two years. And like Shimon was talking about, the complexity of what happens over time and the things that kids need and the fears they develop, it's complicated. And, you know, they didn't do anything. Their families didn't do anything to bring this upon themselves. We've allowed it societally, right? We've allowed this to continue happening and we owe it to them. You know, it's really just a matter of money. If we can afford to spend billions of dollars, which we do on school resource officers every year, we can afford also to send in long-term therapists in the aftermath of school shootings. Shimon, it makes me wonder how Rob Elementary parents and the families of the teachers who were killed that day as well, how they're making sense of the absence of that support and those resources for their kids. I don't think they can make sense of it. I don't know that they know how. Um, you know, they try to fight for their kids as best as they could. Um, I also think that they, in many ways, are allowing the kids sort of to dictate their own lives, really, at 10 and 11 years old, making their own decisions. Because um, I don't know that the parents necessarily know. Now, this is not all the parents. I think mm-hmm. some of the survivors, the parents, what they've done is like what you what you just heard about going, to, having to leave town to get therapy, having to take time off from work. These are not people who have a lot of money. The gas, the 90-minute drive just one way, right? It's like going back and forth to San Antonio for therapy. Um, and I think in many ways it's really hard. They don't have, a lot of the parents don't have the means to do this. And so they're staying in this community. And one of the things that they're doing, so for the survivors, they're kind of, the kids are all kind of hanging out together and they have these moments together where they, they spend a lot of time together. And the parents think that that's very helpful for the kids. Um, but the parents are so frustrated because they don't, know where to turn for help they don't know what to do and I think they have a hard time advocating for themselves and advocating for their children and they feel marginalized they feel that they don't have the support uh, of this community Mm. and there is also a division between some of the families you know the survivors and some of the deceased the families don't necessarily get along um, I don't know why that is, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. I've not covered a story like this ever in my life. Uh, I, you know, I've certainly have been part of coverage of other mass shootings and school shootings, but this is just so different on so many levels. You know, you have the failed response and just this division in this community and this inability for some of these parents to get help for their kids and I don't I don't know if they can make sense of it I think they just live day to day and try to get help wherever they can 
Well, then there's the ongoing lack of transparency uh, that that families are are talking about. Even the Uvalde mayor says he's gotten more information from journalists like you than from officials. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, he's... So the mayor wants to fire officers, but he needs cause. It's very difficult and complicated to fire police officers in this state, especially. And so he needs to do an investigation and he needs to present facts and he needs to say why he's firing certain officers. So he hired someone to do an investigation, but he needs information. And the district attorney has prevented him from getting any of that information. I don't understand why. He doesn't understand why. And so they are in this battle. He is the mayor of this town. For a year now, he's been battling with her. He's suing her to get this information. I think they're going to come to some kind of compromise here soon. But that's what we're dealing with here. And for the families, they have meetings with the DA from time to time. She refuses to tell them anything. She doesn't trust them. The one thing that a district attorney is supposed to do is supposed to advocate for victims and provide families of victims information, whatever it is they need. And they do not feel that she's been doing that. And no updates on anything here in terms of the investigation, in terms of what specifically happened to some of these children in the minutes of whether they were rescued or the kids who died. And so they are turning to journalists for information. Uh, you know, They came to me asking to see video. It puts us in a really difficult position. Um, but how do you say no to yeah. parents who are trying to get answers? How? Well, I want to I go to another clip here of that special you released called The Whole Story. It's from The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, and this was a special about Uvalde. And here you're asking parents if they want to watch that law enforcement body camera footage that CNN obtained from the day. I think the reason we want to watch it is because when Mia explains it to us, we want to put, you know, the story together, see what, when she tells us things like what it is, how how it happened. Me, I just want to see the, the big picture of it, exactly what she went through, where she was at, you know, I just, that's... And how they suffered. Yeah, I want to see, that's my thing, how they suffered and why they suffered so long, you know what I mean? The truth is going to finally come out one day, but I mean, what can you do? You just got to wait patiently until the truth comes out. And those were the parents of students who survived the shooting. Shimon, your team was very intentional about what you showed and what you didn't show to the television audience in this documentary. Uh, For instance, we don't hear any gunshots unless there's shots being exchanged between the shooter and police. You don't show any footage from inside the classroom. Walk us through the editorial conversation you had that helped you make those choices. Um, so the editorial conversation, when the families uh, first called uh, we, we, and asked to see this, we were sort of surprised. I got the phone call from one of the mothers, and I was shocked. And so we took it to our folks, you know, the higher-ups and the lawyers, and we sort of figured some things out and what we can show and what we shouldn't show. And, and we had to show only things that pertain to the kids of the families we talked to. So that was part of it. We also did not want to show uh, any of the bodies, the the dead children being pulled out of the classroom. Uh, and we were not going to show them anything from inside the classroom because that was just 
it's too horrific and it didn't pertain to anything that had to do with their kids. They, they, you know, the deal that sort of what they wanted to see was their kids coming out of the classroom and being rescued in those moments of them running out. And then there was another significant uh, piece of video, body camera footage, where their kids, the survivors, are placed on a school bus and taken to the hospital. And that was important for the parents because they wanted to see what their kids were doing in those moments and what they were saying. One of the uh, little girls, uh, Kendall Olivares, was passing out. She had lost so much blood and she had been shot several times. Had she had the police not breached at the moment they did, she probably would have died. Um, and her mom wanted to see her on the bus because she was passing out. She didn't know that. And so we were showing her that video. And that was something that she really wanted to see. And the family said that it was for closure. They wanted some kind of closure. And so that's why we did it. Um, it was not an easy decision. I was honestly just very scared of their reaction to it and how they would react and what would I do uh, in those moments that there was some real negative reaction. Um, but we spoke to them a lot off camera and then we decided we wanted to film their reaction. And depending on how it was, how it went and depending on how they felt about it, um, we would air it. And they agreed to allow us to air it. So everything we did was with consideration to them and to their feelings and to what they wanted. And we asked several times even afterwards if it was okay for us to air their kids, to air the video of their kids on the bus and injured and shot and one girl who was covered in blood, not her own blood. And the mom said, yes, you can do it. We asked several, several times. It was not an easy decision at all. Sari, I, I want to hear from you on, on this question because it, it's something, it's a conversation we hear a lot uh, uh, that the U.S. media doesn't show graphic images of shootings. And from your perspective as a survivor, do you think it would make a difference if we saw more around these shootings and, and what it actually does to people? I think it's a really difficult question, especially because gun violence impacts each survivor differently. And, you know, each family has to make that decision if if they would be comfortable with that. So I, I think it's difficult to answer. And I also, you know, it's hard to know if, if that would really be the change and that would cause more people to support gun safety or not. I think there's a lot of support for these laws. And a lot of times it comes down to the politicians choosing not to support them. Uh, so I think it's a difficult decision. And, and I really think it depends on each survivor and each family member. Yeah, that's another moment in this documentary where you're talking to a lawmaker, Shimon, and he says he was talking to someone across the aisle in the legislature. And, and they said, this is why we don't watch the videos, and, and that really stayed with me. Siri, I want to make sure to note that you're going to school for political science, and again, you're the founder of the voting informational organization, My Vote Project. Why was it important for you to get involved in politics and policy after your experience? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of different ways to respond to gun violence, and one of the ways I responded is with My Vote Project, which is a voter education organization, and we work with over... 100 high school students to research local candidates like district attorneys, like police chiefs, because what we've learned is how important 
those elected positions are on the local level. And if people have nonpartisan information and aren't just voting on different cues, we think that we can make a change on the local level. And we bring in a lot of young people to engage with their local community. Um, and I really believe that step by step, we can continue to make change and hopefully end the gun violence epidemic. That's Siri Kaufman, a survivor of the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. She's a volunteer at Students Demand Action and the founder and director of the My Vote Project. Also with us, Shimon Prokopaz, a senior crime and justice correspondent at CNN, and John Woodrow Cox, a staff writer at The Washington Post. He's also the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. John, Shimon, Siri, thank you so much for your time today. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen Moynt. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.